0: Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Ark chapter 15, and I'm starting at verse 1.
1: Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Uh, Chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is called the Praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple rope on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and they mocked him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. We we'll now have a moment to reflect on these words
0: The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, with them, among themselves, "He saved others," they said, "but he can't save himself." Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may believe, uh, see and believe. Those who crucified with who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. May your word live in us.
2: Thank you. Well, as we come to our time in the word. Um, let us pray, my friends. Uh, Bless us in all that we do today, Lord. Let us sit at the foot of the cross and bask in the power, the greatness, and the victory of our crucified Lord. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know whether you know this, but have you ever thought about how incredibly foolish your religion appears to people around the world? I mean, historically. Uh, The central symbol of our religion is a crucifix. Now, in the ancient world, crucifixion was one of the most grotesque horrors that could be inflicted on another human being. It is literally one of the worst, deliberately one of the worst ways of killing another human being. It's, It's to manufacture as much suffering and misery as possible. It's not just a way of dispatching with certain enemies of the state. It's about sending a message to the populace that we can do what we want with you, and we are not to be trifled with. It was not just getting rid of the uh, bandits or, or or seditious slaves. It was about sending a public message: "Don't mess with us." It was the ultimate symbol of Roman power, Roman violence, and the very image of of crucifixion. By the way, they didn't crucify people with a nice little loincloth covering their genitals. No, you were stark naked. You would die through a mixture of asphyxiation, shock, blood loss. You could be attacked by crows, rats, and eventually torn apart by dogs overnight. The cross displays the very zenith of degradation, death, disempowerment, and shame, and yet we're told this is where God's power is. And this is why Paul can talk about the foolishness of the cross, whether it's to, to Greeks or Jews, the cross was an element of foolishness. But we, we, don't, we don't appreciate that. We've become desensitized to it. We think of the cross the same way we think of the McDonald's symbol or the five rings of the Olympic Games, you know. No one who saw a crucifixion ever thought about hanging some crosses from the earrings or wearing one. I mean, let me give you an analogy. I want you to imagine this. Imagine my name is Jose, and I've just come to hear from Argentina. And I want to tell you the good news of Carlos Hernandez. Carlos, King Carlos was an Argentinian peasant, who was sent by God to lead the people in liberation from their evil oppressors and the government to bring us the forgiveness of sins, but the government, including their religious leaders, did not like him. So they accused him of being an Al-Qaeda terrorist. They executed him to death on the electric chair, but God raised him back to life and sent me from Argentina to you good people of Australia to tell you King Carlos was electrocuted for your sins. And in fact, we've been rinsing hymns about him. When I cling to the old rugged electric chair, in the chair of Carlos, I glory. Now, I notice you have a lot of buildings with crosses on top, but back in Argentina, we have buildings with chairs on top. Like, you know, when you've got some athletes getting ready to do a big race, some of your athletes will go like this, kind of go... Well, because everyone in Argentina loves King Carlos, when we're getting ready, they, 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 when they're getting ready for the race, they kind of go like that. <laughs> That's how they bless themselves. So the power of King Carlos would be upon them as they as they play soccer or they run or they do anything. And I'm here to tell you that Carlos is the king of you and you can meet him as judge and you can, or you can meet him as saviour. Now, I mean, parody aside, I mean, if someone came up to you like that, you would think this was absolutely out of their mind. Uh, but but this, if this is a little bit how the message of the cross would have sounded to Jews, Greeks, and Romans. Like to, to Jews, crucified Messiah did not make any sense, okay? Uh, and to the Romans, it's like, no, crucifixion means you're the ultimate loser. We're the ones with the power. How can you talk about God's power on the cross, God's honor, God's glory? These things are the antithesis to divinity and and that like. What we see then in the cross are a series of divine ironies. That is where God's power, God's salvation is made known. And I'm going to be using some subheadings I got from a really good essay from Don Carson on on the irony of the cross, but I think it tells us something about the cross we should never forget. The first thing we see, and we see this in verses 16 to 20, is that the man mocked as king, really, oh, I need to back up for a second, sorry, uh, another another element of the foolishness of the cross, again, if you, I mean, this is, this is something I found on Twitter the other day, Okay here was a sort of you know neo pagan talking about why Zeus is better than Jesus now look what he says real gods like Zeus are forms of the good strength and power fake gods like Jesus weakness powerlessness humiliation ugliness emaciation i mean i mean to his credit he is actually riffing off the correct pagan view this is what pagans view you know that the, the gods are about power fertility um Excellence and the cross is the opposite of that. To pagan religion, the cross seemed to be a, a, a thing of weakness and inferiority. Okay, remember that the Romans didn't like Christians because they, they considered a, a religion of the stuli. Okay, uh, Celsus mocked Christians as a religion of slaves, women, and children. Okay, the people are at the bottom of the pyre. Okay but that's not what the cross is. We say we see in it God's power, God's wisdom, God's excellence, and God's glory. But that comes out through the stark irony of the actual circumstances that take place on the cross. So the first irony is this. The man mocked as king really is king. Now, in Mark's gospel, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God. He declares it, he he enacts it, he seems to embody it. And in fact, we know that as the Messiah, he is the very king of that kingdom. And yet the most kingly thing he can do is to lay down his life for his people. In the Gospel of Mark, there is something of a jarring juxtaposition. In, In Mark's Gospel, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God But what we find at the climax of the story is the cross declaring the kingship of the crucified. Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God, and what we find on the cross is the placard talking about the king of the Jews. But this is real kingship. This is his reign. This is his victory. Now to the critics, the priests, the scribes, some of the Pharisees, This was purported kingship, false kingship, fake kingship. This was a mere man, a rustic Galilean who had pretense to royal prerogatives. And for his captors, that gave them license to mock and torment him. That's that's why they take the kingship thing and they torment it with him. But to readers of Mark's gospel, we know this really is the king. This really is the kingdom of God. Now, to Greco-Roman readers, try to put yourselves in the mindset of some of the first readers of the Gospel of Mark or the first to hear the story. The story of Jesus' death would be doubly jarring, even more confronting, because Jesus' death seems to to mirror, it seems to parody the elements of a triumphal procession. You you ever seen in in any of the movies, the triumphal procession? Where the conquering emperor, general or consul comes back to Rome in his chariot and there's a big parade, they go past the Colosseum and, and there's people. Uh, I mean, that, that, that was a proper ceremony in the in the ancient world. After some emperor or general had conquered a new territory or pacified some area, they would have this big victory parade. Kind of kind of like you know that that other pagan festival they have, um, the AFL parade, you know, after. <laughs> Where the victors go through Melbourne um, or Geelong or hopefully one day Brisbane um, with a big celebration of this, this victory. It, it, it's kind of like that. But there were certain key things. I mean, the, the the triumph kind of evolved over the centuries, but there was a number number of things in common. Uh, the triumphator would be dressed in purple. Uh, there would be a placard on the front of his chariot, a sign saying which people he had, call, he had conquered, whether it's the, the, you know, the, the Caledonians, the Alemanni, the Goths, or whoever it was. The Praetorian Guard would line the st- st- uh, street and salute. Uh, they would often requisition a bystander who would be grabbed off the street and be forced to lead a sacrificial animal like a bull up to the place of sacrifice on the Capitoline Hill, and he'd be carrying an axe. Um, often the triumphant would have his two advisors with him, maybe an heir or a a right-hand man. And, you know, when when you know that about the triumphal procession, when you read the crucifixion narrative, does that all sound a little bit familiar? Being clothed in a purple robe, hailed king of the Jews, saluted by the Praetorian, instead of going to the Capitoline Hill up to Golgotha. Two advisers on your left and your right, also being offered a drink. Often the trumpeter would pour it out as a libation, and they would refuse it, and then at the end of it, being hailed as a son of a God, a son of the divine Augustus, or in this case, the son of God. To a Greco-Roman reader that the parallels would be incredibly striking, because the crucifixion, far from signaling the defeat of a failed usurper or a seditious slave looks like the triumph of a conquering emperor or a victorious general. It's in the very rejection of Jesus as king that he becomes acclaimed as king. The mocking derision is, in fact, the very making, the very coronation of Israel's messianic king. It is the crucifixion of Jesus as king that reveals to Israel and to the world the one who is king, and that is irony. The second irony is this, the man mocked as powerless has all power. Uh, In in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is a figure of immense power, personal power, charismatic power. Uh, He has power over the spiritual realm with his exorcisms, power over illness in his healings. Power over the weather. He can can order the wind and the sea around. He has predictive power to foretell foretell his death. Intellectual power. He's able to argue and best the greatest intellectuals of the land. And, you know, I often wonder, did some people read the story of the Gospel of Mark? And they say, like, you know, I really like the first half. I like Jesus the miracle worker. I like Jesus the preacher. But, I mean, you know, it's such a... Such a pity he got crucified in the end because, I mean, he was really onto something. He was really doing some good stuff. And I think what Mark is trying to say, what he's really trying to labor is Jesus is not the Messiah despite going to the cross. He's the Messiah precisely because of it. This is his kingdom. This is his reign. This is his power. This is his victory. This is the the, the irony of God's greatness to show power in the midst of absolute powerlessness. The crucifixion was an evocative symbol of, of Caesar's sovereignty over the world, and yet we're told here this is where the royal and kingly power of God is manifested. Now, remember, they mock him. They mock him on the cross. He saved others, but he can't save himself. But that was precisely his vocation. That's what he's been telling his disciples. Kingship is not going to be as the world knows, as you would find in something like the Psalms of Solomon or the War Scroll of Qumran. No, kingship is about the shepherd who is struck down, the righteous one of the the Psalms who who experiences injustice and cries out to God. It's about the suffering servant. That is the nature of the Messianic vocation, which Jesus embraces. In a momentous irony, it's Jesus' outright refusal to save himself that will implement the salvation of others by ransoming their sins. It is this salvation that proves that Jesus is king. And the paradox of the Christian faith is God's power operates in the face of apparent powerlessness. In the crucified one, God's judgment is declared and discharged. In the crucified one, our sin is born and born away. In the crucified one, our sin is dealt with, our defiance crumbles, our faith quickened, our gratitude awakened, and our obedience is freed. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the wisdom, power, and victory of God. That too is irony. The third irony is we see in verses 38 to 39. The crucified one saves those who crucified him. There's that famous line where the uh, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, "Surely this man was the Son of God." Uh, there was a, there was a great song in Christian music back in the 1990s. I think the 1990s was pretty much the high point. of Christian music, DC Talk and whatever band else, other bands there may have been. Um, Yeah. But Ray Boltz once sang a song called The Hammer. He said, who nailed him there, this child of peace and mercy? Who nailed him there? Come and face me like a man. Who nailed him there? And the crowd began to mock me. I cried, oh, my God, I just don't understand. And then I turned and saw the hammer in my hand. Uh, the centurion story, in many ways, is our story. We crucified Christ through our own sins. And then you know, we love to think, well, if we were there, we wouldn't have done that. No, no. If I was back in ancient Rome, I would have been founding a website called matters.com, down with Caesar, up with liberal democracy, human rights for everyone, Um, let's stop the industrial revolution from happening. You know, if I was back then, I would have been a real righteous person by the standards of the 21st century. And I would not have gone along with the mob or the high priests. I would have not have done that. But the fact is we probably would have done that. Maybe we would have joined on with the mocking and the ebbing of the crowds. Maybe we would have been one of those centurions or a sycophant of one of the priests or one of the servants working in uh, the palace of Caiaphas. And yet we, uh, the centurion for all his recognition that there's something different about Jesus, that there is something unique about the way he dies, there is, there is something different about him. Nonetheless, he's still the guy who put the hammers, the, na- the nails into his body. And he stands there guilty of what he's done. And yet he is also one for whom the death of Jesus applies. Jesus comes to us for our redemption. He breaks down the barrier between God and us, a barrier not made of stone, but made of sin, to deliver us from the judgment that we rightly deserve, to bring us the justice that, that does not condemn us, but the justice delivers us. You see, because we all we all live lives of irony, but our irony is the bad version. Which we can call hypocrisy, and we all suffer from that. We all we we all have the the hypocrisy sickness. When people ask me how I'm doing, I feel like saying, "Sick with hypocrisy, grieving the sin that still exists within my body, struggling to conform myself to the image of Christ, so I can love God and love my neighbors." But apart from that, I'm feeling fine. <laughs> That's what we all suffer. We suffer that type of hypocrisy because we're yet to fully mortify the sin that still reigns in our bodies. And when we come to the cross, there's a number of things we can do. You can, you can be like the priests and say Jesus serves him right and go back to your apartment. You can be like the centurion who says, actually, that guy was pretty cool. There'll be more people to crucify tomorrow. You can be the, with the, like the crowds. who saw how Jesus died, saw all the portents, the darkness, and probably thought, well, that was weird. Or you can be like the women who were there. Remember when Jesus told all the disciples in the crowd that they have to follow him all the way to the cross? The only one who actually did it were his female disciples. They, they went there all the way to the cross. They went to the tomb where he was buried, and they were the ones who was there when he was risen. We, we should be like the women. If anything, then we need to lean into the great irony that we are the ones who have been saved, even though we are not really savable. We are powerless and we rely on the one who has power, but it's not in in in, in majesty and greatness. It's in the amidst powerlessness. We need, to, we need to embrace the irony of the cross and accept the paradoxes it presents us, that the way the world orders its values, do not necessarily make sense. And God brings a reordering of power, a, re, a, 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 a an inversion of the price tags on things and creates a better world, a better way of being human. We need to think about the cross as if it's incredibly ironic. The crucified king, It's, it's do as I say, but not as I do. It's Bumbling through life when you don't have a clue. It's like 10,000 sins are a weight in your chest, then finding grace in the storm because you've really been blessed. And isn't it ironic? Don't you think? A little too ironic? Yeah, I really do think. It's like Jesus forgave all my sins. My sins are dead. But the debt has been paid. It's the good news that Jesus is king because he's crucified and risen. Yes, I really do think it's ironic. (laughs) The rest of our life, the life of faith, is to lean into the irony. Remember that God saves those who could not save themselves. There's power in weakness, scandal in grace, victory in death, hope in the darkness. So keep following Jesus to the cross. To the tr- to the tomb into new life, because the ironies only get better. And on that note, I think we shall close. Thank you.